Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, for bringing me back safely, for the ministry that was done in Singapore, and for all the blessing that you have poured out there, and for the opportunity to continue teaching here so that others may hear it. Thank you, Lord, for this room tonight of people who have come to hear that very thing, your word, and uh, your wisdom in it. And I ask, Father, that uh, with the strength that I may have after uh, a bit of travel and and time adjustment, Lord, that uh, you would multiply it and you'd make it worthy of the of the needs of your teaching tonight and uh, sustain me in it. And I pray, Lord, that the, the wisdom in it would be self-evident and from you, triumphing, triumphing over my weakness, Father. And we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, with two weeks gone, we probably forget a little bit where we were. Let's pick up again. We're in chapter 15. And if you're counting, this is part four of the Upper Room Discourse teaching. And we have more to go even after tonight. Jesus continues in this teaching to prepare the disciples for his departure and for their roles as leaders in the church in his absence. Let's review what he's done so far in the first three parts. Jesus has revealed to his disciples that they can expect the following. First, they're going to see Jesus depart. Then he's going to return for them in the future at some unannounced time. Secondly, in his absence... They're going to do greater works than he has done, at least in the sense of quantity and reach or scope. Third, their prayers will be heard and answered as they make requests in Jesus' name. Fourth, they will receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to equip them for representing Christ on earth. Fifth, that Spirit will teach them and remind them of all that Christ said so that they will be accurate and equipped for their work. And furthermore, all his disciples will enjoy a special relationship with God made possible by the propitiation of Christ and the indwelling of the Spirit. He says they'll be beloved by the Son and by the Father, that they'll be called friends of Christ, not merely his servants or slaves, that they can know his plans in advance, in other words. They can be participating in that work, unlike a slave who just takes orders and does what he's told. We have a part to play in understanding what he's doing and trying to help meet those goals. And lastly, at the end of the last week's lesson, Christ said he will give them his peace, and he will abide in them, even as he calls for them to remain in him, to abide in him. All of these lessons comprise just the first half of the Upper Room Discourse. We still have a couple of chapters to go, including Jesus' high priestly prayer, which you probably are looking forward to in John chapter 17. And tonight, to get to that, we rejoin the discourse near the end of chapter 15, as Jesus gives yet more promises and yet more instructions to his disciples. And he also moves into a period of warning. Warning his disciples that their mission will not be an easy one in his absence. And in fact, he's going to reveal to them tonight that it brings all manner of dangers, including martyrdom, which is quite a shock for the disciples, as you might expect. Pick up again in verse 16 of chapter 15. A little bit of a restatement here on a couple of verses we read last week, but we'll pick up there. Verse 16, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. Jesus reminds the disciples they've been enlisted or drafted, in a sense. Jesus chose each one of them to be his disciples and to be counted among the twelve, which we call the apostles, or Jesus called the apostles. The word apostle just means one sent with a message. They have this particular role even above the average disciple. This designation of apostle is specific to these 11 men now, soon to be 12 with Matthias. These 11 men, and there are other select men who receive this title as well outside the 12, like Paul and Barnabas, etc. These are the ones that Jesus has or will equip in a unique way to carry the message forward to lead the church. Jesus chooses and Jesus appoints apostles. Apostles do not choose to be apostles, nor do they choose Jesus at all. And no one may assign the title of apostle to themselves. This is something I also encounter. People love titles everywhere. I've often seen people who love to call themselves all manner of titles, and they, they find it particularly compelling, I guess, to resurrect old titles, prophet, apostle, etc., and appropriate those for themselves, probably, I assume, for prideful, egotistical reasons or whatever. But the Bible is very clear about that. Men like apostles, are made so by Christ alone. And when that title is bestowed by Christ, it comes with certain powers, powers that are intended to bear fruit in very unique ways within the body of Christ. And therefore, these men have 
a special commissioning, a special authority, and with that special responsibilities that God has laid upon their shoulders. And then because of that, there are certain obligations that come with it. Paul says in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 4, he says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who has enlisted him as a soldier. Paul's writing to Timothy, not an apostle in this case, but the principle he lays out for Timothy is one that equally applies, if not greater, applies to apostles. And that is to say that apostling isn't for the faint of heart. They need to commit themselves to seeing this through. That's his commissioning here. Of You have not chosen me, but I've chosen you. I've enlisted you as a soldier, as it were, for Christ. And just as the success of any military squad depends on the cohesiveness of that unit, Jesus is about to give them instructions that will help prepare them for the battle, including eyes wide open concerning the threat. And he begins it with that focus on cohesiveness. He says, love one another. First command, love one another. Every man has to watch every other man's back in military parlance. If the body of Christ will not love itself, no one else is going to do that. No one else will love us in the way that Jesus means here. And as they enter or prepare to enter battle with the enemy, they're going to face an enemy who knows who is his and who is the spirits. And so the enemy will never be confused about who the target is. The enemy will never feel any sympathy. The enemy will never be tired. The enemy never gives up. So. He asks the believer, the apostles first and us as well, show love to one another so that no one gets pulled down, no one gets left behind in the battle, so that at least within our own ranks, we can shore up the strength of the body and face of the enemy. So if we're not willing to love one another, we're we're just waiting to be picked off by the enemy because there's really no strength at that point in the fight. And what a battle it will be at times. Jesus says in verse 18, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, well, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sin. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, He will testify about me and you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. In verse 18, Jesus presents an important and timeless principle that holds true not only for these men, but for all servants of the living God. The enemy hates God and he knows who loves God. So he uses all his power at his disposal to persecute and attack those who are God's people. This is a principle. This isn't a mood. This isn't circumstantially dependent. This is a basic spiritual principle. Unbelievers are the world, in this case, the ones Jesus is talking about here, which Jesus said will persecute Christians, just as Cain persecuted Abel. And this principle is so inviolate that it lies behind Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians, for example, that we should never be bound with unbelievers, whatever the context. Why? Because as much as they might try against this spiritual principle, they will persecute the believer. Ask anyone in a marriage to an unbeliever. Ask anyone in a business relationship to an unbeliever. When you match yourself with someone who doesn't know the Lord in any context, you've put yourself in the battle with the enemy, even if that person on a personal level, on a human level, doesn't see you in that way. At a fundamental level, at the spiritual level, when you say left, they're going to want to go right, especially if you're being led by the Spirit. When you say do this, if it's godly directed by the Spirit, they have at their core an innate, unconscious, unavoidable spiritual pull against doing that very thing. Now you've got contention where you wouldn't have necessarily had it otherwise, strictly because of this principle. The world will hate God and anyone who comes in his name. 
Now, in the way that manifests, of course, it can be subtle, it can be violent, or anything in between, but it's going to be there at some level. That's why Paul says light has nothing in common with darkness. You can't find common ground between light and darkness. It's not gray. It's not twilight. There's no overlap. And so, as a result, we have to see our relationship to unbelievers with this understanding, with this insight. The enemy works in a variety of ways. He has a, probably a limitless set of tools at his disposal for how he can bring that kind of persecution. But what's most interesting to me is the way that the enemy can use, can enlist the hearts and minds of other unbelievers to act against believers everywhere, whether family, friend or neighbor or even stranger. So that even though they personally wouldn't have motive necessarily to be your opponent, the enemy can use what's already in their heart to stir up discontent and stir up directions to make them basically his pawns in this fight. And so that's how Jesus can speak so globally when he says the world will persecute, the world will hate. He's speaking to the nature of the enemy working in the hearts of unbelievers who are at his disposal without necessarily their conscious awareness of any of this. Jesus' statement in verse 18, where he says, if the world hates you, it may sound a little conditional, like it may not necessarily be true that they hate you or they might hate you, but that's not what he's saying here. The relationship is not conditional. It's always status quo. You'll even notice in verses 19 and 20 that he adds that his disciples will be hated because of their association with him. The word in Greek for if can also be translated since, and the better way to actually say it in context would be to say as often as the world hates you. It does hate you, and as often as that happens, these will be the outcomes. So even when the disciples of the Lord experience good times, relatively speaking, and many of us may say that about our circumstances by and large right now, even when that is our situation, we need to understand it's not going to last. For example, Jesus himself probably enjoyed many good days of ministry in his years on earth, but those days eventually gave way to mistreatment. Eventually, he faced crucifixion. And by the way, so did most of his apostles. By that same token, so will we. Now, what we'll see in terms of what comes will differ by culture and circumstance, etc. But to simply say to yourself that because God loves me, I can just expect a smooth ride right to the grave. Well, even if you said it that way, think about it. At the end of there, there's a grave. So something came along, right? So this is a principle you just can't avoid. And in fact, seeking to avoid it is counterproductive spiritual behavior. Because the only way you can avoid it, as you'll see in a minute, is by avoiding your witness. You might ask, why does this principle exist? Well, Jesus actually explains that in verses 20 and 21. He says, our mistreatment is the result of our association with Christ, which is to say, the devil finds nothing inherently in us worth persecuting. He doesn't care about us. It's not as though we are his enemy inherently. He would probably if not definitely, prefer to attack God directly. That's his target. But as Jesus leaves the earth, there's no choice but to attack those who represent God in the absence of his person, in the absence of Christ. And that's been the case all along. He's always attacked God's people in whatever form as an indirect means of attacking God. He also does it to prevent God from working through us to some aim, whatever that goal would be. If Satan or his agents can dissuade us from following the Lord's word or from following his spirit, then he has obtained some measure of success, at least in the short term. And that's his perspective. Furthermore, apart from demonic involvement, if you just remove Satan for a moment from the equation, the world of unbelievers will also, independent of Satan, work against us in hatred to Christ's disciples and to the message of the gospel. Because Jesus says in verse 21, they lack the knowledge and love of the father. They are opposed to the father as well. And in verses 23 and 24, Christ says that since they are without a relationship with the Father, then they must hate Christ and all who come in his name, because having rejected Christ, they remain in their sin. And remaining in their sin, they'll act as sin requires, which is to oppose God by nature. This is what I was talking about earlier. So unless you know Christ, you don't know the Father. Unless you know the Father, you are in the nature you have by Adam. And in that nature, you are always and unavoidably opposed to God. Or anything that represents him. So to the extent you represent him accurately, witness to him truly, you have put God in their presence to a degree. And in so doing, you have you've taken Magnus with two North Poles or two South Poles and you've tried to slam them together. And that is an opposite force that cannot be reconciled, not, not by our strength. And so there'll be opposition and probably never more so than in your own family. If you happen to have to interact with unbelief in your family. Secondly, in verse 22, Jesus highlights that unbelievers will experience conviction. This is different. 
The first example was just in the fact that by nature they're opposed to God, whether or not you bring any conviction to them. But second and apart from that, unbelievers will typically experience conviction when they encounter the righteousness of God at work in the saints by the spirit. Had God, Jesus said, had God never brought this righteousness to earth, had he never come to them, then the unbeliever could have been able to live in blissful ignorance of righteousness. He was not suggesting that they would not, quote, be sinful without his presence. He's saying from their perspective, they would not have had sin. They would have not have understood where they are in relationship to God, except that by God's presence in Christ, by his appearing and his display of righteousness, the contrast could be made evident. It would be like saying you would have no understanding you're in the dark until someone gives you light. The same concept going on here. So we, the body of Christ, come in his absence as his representation. And by the grace of God, we exhibit the traits of righteousness that the spirit produces in us. That's how the world can know of God through us. They can know not only of his presence and of his truth by the word and how we represent it, but they can also know of what it produces in men and women, what it looks like. And when they see that, whether it's articulated or not, preferably not, then they know instinctively they are not right with God as they rub elbows with believers. But remember, that requires that we live according to the sanctification that the Lord is doing in us. I mean, you can conceal it if that's your goal. But when you live according to the word of God and by the work of the spirit in you, you naturally become a source of conviction in the world. And it doesn't require that you say anything at all. I have so many stories of that in my own experience. I've had people who will just swear like a sailor all day long and then they'll do it with me around and they'll say, oh, I'm sorry, Steve. They just naturally feel this sense that I I shouldn't have done that. I've never once told them not to. There's nothing outside of my own just being who I am that would have led them to think that. But somehow they had that impression. Conviction is natural. He even quotes here from the Psalms with David, where David wrote concerning himself in the Psalms that they hated him without a cause. Hated David. Now, it's obviously prophetic of the Messiah as well. But it was written by David speaking of himself. They hated me without a cause. Why did they hate David? Because he convicted them of righteousness, because he was a man who followed God's heart. But if their conviction doesn't lead them to repentance, then the only thing left is for them to persecute those who bring that conviction. And just in case you think this principle has some exceptions, perhaps for you, or at least you're hoping, Jesus reminds us that we're not greater than he is, are we? He means that we're not more important to the Father, nor are we worthy of greater privilege than the Father was willing to give his own Son. Therefore, if the Father didn't spare his Son from persecution, then we have no cause to think he's going to think more highly of us and spare us. The form may be different, but the principle isn't going to be different. You cannot say that God loves you, therefore he won't let bad things happen to you. That's a non-biblical statement. The first half is true, God loves you. The second half is false. It's because he loves you that he's going to bring trials and persecution. And there are many prosperity and feel-good preachers that repeat this lie. Jesus here stands to testify against them. The truth is opposite of what they say. Bad things happen to good people for good reasons. First of all, bad is sort of dependent on your point of view. Let's remember that what's bad from our point of view isn't necessarily bad at all. Persecution and trials are tools of good purpose in the hands of a living God. As James taught, James 1, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So we're told to expect the world to respond, Jesus says, with hatred and persecution whenever we serve the Lord. And he has put his disciples, and therefore I think all of us, on notice that we had no excuse for pressing forward with the mission simply because bad things start to happen when we do that. Which is the whole reason he gave this teaching. They can't use persecution or rejection as a reason to abandon the work. But that might have been their temptation, certainly. might be ours, even. We know it's coming. We've been put on notice to expect it. So now it's part of the deal of being a disciple. Furthermore, this principle implies that the degree of persecution we may face is at least loosely connected or dependent on the extent of witness that we represent. Standing firm in your faith and living it outwardly is a recipe to gain the enemy's negative attention. Consequently, the only way to avoid, quote, avoid persecution is to shrink back from your witness as a believer. In doing so, you will voluntarily remove yourself from the battlefield so that the enemy need not bother doing it himself. And I see that a lot. I see people whose whose attitude is that if I'm making everyone upset, 
I must be doing something wrong. Well, for many people, that's true. But, <laughs> but in this context, that's not a true statement. At the end of verse 20, the Lord gives us a corollary truth. He says that those who kept his word will keep the disciples' word as well. Simply put, the world responds to us as it would to Jesus where he's standing on earth making the appeal personally. This is such a, I think, empowering and encouraging principle when you understand what Jesus is saying. He's saying when they persecute us, they would have done exactly the same thing to Jesus had he been standing and doing the job himself. They're not persecuting us as if we are somehow differently than he. We're not saying we're shouldn't shouldn't become a source of always me. In other words, look at me having to suffer. You're just taking your stand in. You're the understudy for Christ. You just stood in and you got what he would have got. But when a person repents and when a person accepts the gospel in response to your witness or testimony, then they would have done that same thing as well in the presence of Jesus. If they would have kept his word, they're keeping yours because they would have kept his word. And in that sense, and this is the empowering part of this, you approach ministry understanding that you operate in Jesus's absence with the same power and authority that he has in the sense of what he equips you with. And by that authority, you're going to see exactly the same results. Think about how his own ministry on earth went. How many people did he speak to yet? How many people followed him? If that's his result, we shouldn't expect 100 percent response either. But by that same token, the whole process works the same way for us as it did for him by the spirit. We're just his stand in. If your efforts to convert new believers or, or even just to gain an audience for the gospel without res- respect to their response, if that effort seems fruitless at times, if it goes nowhere at times, well, just remember, Jesus would have found exactly the same result under those same circumstances. He would have shaken the dust off his sandals and walked off. And the point is, this is happening all through the Gospels. And we should see that it's just an extension into our own lives as we conduct the same ministry. All believers are found, so to speak, in the same way. By the call of the Father and the movement of the Spirit for that person to believe in the name of Jesus. Therefore, go out boldly with whatever God gives you to do. And whatever response you receive, that response would have come to Jesus had he stood before that person himself. For, in a sense, he is through you. Lastly, Jesus reiterates his promise to send the Spirit, the Helper. Noticeably, he calls the Spirit the Helper here because he's speaking about the disciples' work in the face of great opposition, a place where they're going to need help. And so this supernatural power of the Spirit is going to be present with them so that they'll have the ability to change hearts and minds in the face of the enemy's attacks. We know that's the Spirit of truth, the one he's talking about here. Notice Jesus speaks of the Spirit as an independent actor in the Godhead. In fact, this section is one of the clearest in Scripture for really seeing the Godhead at work. We've already seen Jesus declare that he and the Father together are one. He said that already. Now he refers to the Spirit of truth as a third independent actor in the Godhead. And no book of Scripture represents this truth of the Trinity more clearly than John's Gospel, and probably never more so than right here in this section. Jesus says, The helper will allow the apostles to testify to the truth of the gospel, meaning their unique ability and power of the spirit assigned to apostles. The apostles not only had the authority to write scripture, they raised people from the dead. They had miraculous healings. They lay on hands, create these great displays of the spirit. They condemn the living to die while raising the dead to new life. The book of Acts documents all of this stuff. These are all the miracles that are associated with being an apostle. So when he says the spirit will testify, he speaks to the power of an apostle to make a testimony through their works, through what the Spirit will do in their life. Unique things. No other believer, by the way, possesses these powers as a rule, as a routine, as part of an ongoing spiritual practice. It's unique to being an apostle that you can do these things regularly. And in fact, Paul alludes to the unique quality of his apostolic powers when he challenged imposters in Corinth. Uh, You may remember from 1 Corinthians in chapter 4, speaking in verse 18, he says, Now, Some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? He's referring specifically to the some who are arrogantly claiming to have powers they don't actually have. And he says, I will find out. If they have this power, they claim to have, because what he's referring to is the false apostles who had walked in after he had left Corinth and claimed to be apostle and claimed by that authority to have equality with Paul in teaching. 
Paul says, okay, anybody can make the claim, but when I come there, we're going to find out if you have the power to back it up, which included things like you see in the book of Acts, which were characteristic of being an apostle. Later in 2 Corinthians, Paul calls these false apostles out again. He says, 2 Corinthians 11, 12, he says, but what I am doing, I will continue to do so that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. These are the same ones he was talking about earlier. There were men out there boasting of this gift without the power to back it up. And that was important in the early church. If the early church was going to be founded on the leadership and the writing of the apostles, then it makes sense that God would equip them in ways that could distinguish them from anyone who might challenge their authority or claim to have equality with them. Powers that no one can fake, that no one can counterfeit, so that there would never be a doubt in the church who to listen to and who to follow in those early days. Now that the canon of Scripture has been completed by their work, we are no longer dependent on powers, signs, wonders, etc. in order to know the truth. We have the written word of God, which is the record of those men who had the powers. And by that, we can be sure that we're studying only what is true. So it helped the fathers determine apostolic authority when they assembled the canon, by the way. That's how they knew which books to include and which ones not to include. They included the ones written by men who had not only the claim of apostle, but the demonstrated power. The logic is very simple. If God has given these men such miraculous powers, then it stands to reason that their words must be agreeable to God. If God didn't like what they were saying, he wouldn't continue to empower them to say it and to prove it with their powers. So it became a substantiation of their authority in that sense. When someone else says, I have a word from the Lord, but they can't do anything to prove they're an apostle, well, they've also convicted themselves in that respect. Moving on to verse 27, Jesus says the apostles, in addition to what the Spirit does through them, the apostles themselves will testify. He's referring to their mission to simply be human beings and to go out speaking the truth of what they know. They communicate the message, they testify. The Spirit works in them to back up the message, testifying through powers. Today, we don't do step one, but we still do step two with equal fervor, equal opportunity. We communicate the same message that the apostles did. In fact, you could argue we have an advantage over them and that we have the printed word of God already available in its whole form for us to use in substantiating our message. That's why we don't need the powers, the signs and the wonders that they needed. Now, let's move into chapter 16. As you move into chapter 16, the conversation becomes increasingly dire this is the chapter in which Jesus reveals more and more about what's going to come after his departure, particularly the bad things, as we might call them, that are going to happen to the apostles. Verse one, he says, these things I've spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogues. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the father or me. But these things I have spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Chapter 16 opens with Jesus informing the disciples that their future as disciples holds some very unpleasant things. He shares the news in the hope that they will be better prepared to face the trials that are coming without stumbling as a result. And he begins with saying, first, you're going to be kicked out of synagogues. Now that doesn't seem so bad, does it? Well, unless you're a Jew, unless that's your way of life, he's referring to the fact that these Jewish men and all like them in the church will be utterly rejected by their own people. Being put out of the synagogue is emblematic of a larger issue. It means persona non grata in the Jewish community. It means being ostracized. It's not just about where you attend worship. Ironically, they're going to be rejected by the Jewish people because they accepted the Jewish Messiah that was sent to the Jewish people. It took many decades after Christ walked the earth before the Jewish church fully realized they were no longer a part of Judaism and started to understand that they were something that was going to exist distinct from Judaism. In the initial way it was formed in the first decades, it was largely a Jewish church and it largely operated within Judaism. It would use the synagogues to meet. It was uh, positioned as a sect of Judaism. That's why Romans largely left it alone for the first few decades like another denomination of Judaism. That's how it began. That's how it was seen. The hope within that community was that they would continue to convert more and more of their brethren and finally at some point bring the whole of the Jewish world into the view of Jesus as Messiah. Of course, that wasn't God's purpose. Paul outlines that clearly in Romans. But that was decades later that people began to see and understand this. So when they're told here that they're going to be sent out from the synagogue to be rejected by their own people 
it had to have been a complete shock to them and perhaps one they couldn't even accept at the moment. Clearly, Peter didn't get the point because in Acts, he has to get a special dream before he'll even talk to a Gentile about the gospel. Secondly, he says religious people, religious minded people are going to gladly kill the apostles and other disciples thinking they're doing God's bidding in the process. That process of killing began, as you probably know, with the stoning of Stephen at the approving of Saul, reminding us that the apostle Paul was once one of those zealot murderers working for God in the wrong way. Once again, though, that message had been completely shocking and terrifying for these guys because they have seen Jesus do nothing but good works and be praised for it generally and to speak powerfully good words to everyone he turns to. They've been expecting him to ascend the throne of David and set up a kingdom on earth. Why would any of his followers be at risk of death for that? The whole idea would have made no sense to them. Jesus says they will do these things, these persecutions, thinking they serve God by doing so. And in a sense, or at least in a, in a to a degree, they were serving God. It's just not the right God. They're serving a God, a different God, through their persecution. They serve a false god, Satan. That God deceives the world into thinking that their acts of hatred are right and proper. And as a result, the unbelieving world can develop into a very zealous group of people when they choose to around whatever their false god is. They can be very sincere in the beliefs that they hold, but conviction is never a substitute for the truth. And these people are sincerely wrong. And so Jesus tells his disciples, all of these things, the synagogues, the persecutions, the, the killings, whatever comes, are things that they need to prepare for. These are the challenges that lie ahead. And he says, I've been telling you differently before now. Now I'm telling you these things. And he's picked his timing for care for obvious reasons, right? That he's about to walk to his death within a few hours. And these men are going to see the persecutions come soon after that. Then he adds this statement, which is, is actually kind of comical. I'm not sure if you're hearing it that way as you read it. But it's a comical statement when he asks, well, no one is asking me where I'm going now, are you? Now that you've heard that being a disciple will lead to martyrdom, you're not so eager to figure out where I'm going, are you? Instead, he says, the mood's become kind of somber. And it's no surprise, of course, that what he said would create sadness in the room. But his point is that their willingness to follow and to serve is dependent on what's in it for them. Now that they're hearing there's some bad things that could come from being his disciple, they've completely lost interest in asking him where where he's going or how they can follow. That's his point. And he's saying this knowing their hearts. It didn't require that he wait a long time to figure this out, right? He knew what they were thinking. That they are now moved to serve based on certain self-needs rather than on the spiritual needs. They have to move beyond that. They've got to serve Christ beyond earthly gain and begin to understand the true mission of the church. So he moves now to explaining the proper perspective on the benefits of serving Christ under this arrangement. He says in verse 7, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, well, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Jesus is describing the importance of valuing eternal gain over earthly gain, which is a principle that's reinforced throughout the New Testament. Because he says he departs the earth, it therefore becomes necessary for the disciples to take his place. I mean, until he leaves, he doesn't give anyone the job in his place. They just walk along with him. Right. So his departure becomes a good thing for the disciple in the sense that we get to work in a place that we would never have had opportunity to work in. Therefore, because we take his place, he says, well, then I'll have to send you the helper. We have to have a means by which to perform the supernatural work of ministry to include displaying Christ's power, but more importantly, just to be able to reach him through the world through the word. Where before the disciples had been on the outside watching Jesus do his work alone, now they're going to take a part in ministry that is personal by means of the spirit, and therefore they will experience the joy of the work, which was largely outside their reach before. Remember earlier in Jesus' ministry when he gave, gave the disciples a preview of what it would be like to serve in his power? In Luke chapter 9, It says, verse one, and he called the twelve together and gave them, look, power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. These are not powers common to every believer, but this is what he commissioned these men to have at the time. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God, which is common to all of us, and to perform healing. Now, he does this twice, first with the twelve, later with seventy. 
It's interesting how you see the 70 respond in chapter 10. Just one chapter later, he sends them out again, a larger group. And then in 1017, it says the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Sort of like two buddies were talking hunting stories. He says, yep, you're right. I was watching him fall. Just camaraderie there over the mission. And then he says, and behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, he says, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. So in chapter 10 of Luke, the disciples came back with that rejoicing over their miraculous powers like a kid with a new toy. And they come back to to tell the Lord how excited they are at what they could do on his behalf. Jesus corrects their focus a little toward the end and says, I'm glad you're happy to have all that power. But that's not the reason you should be so happy. You should be happy about how this opportunity to serve me and know me is enshrined your name in heaven. And by your service, you may see a reward as well. These apostles are going to experience that kind of opportunity daily now. That's the distinction. These guys in the earlier part of the gospel got it in a moment. They came back all jazzed up over that chance to do a few hours worth of work. Jesus says, I'm leaving and you have the rest of your lifetime to operate under these same basic principles. And to a degree, that's going to be the experience for all of Christ's disciples because he's left us all here on his behalf. Now, with the joy that you see here, all of that joy comes with the same challenges and threats that Jesus faced himself. You see, it's it's two sides of the same coin. If we are his representatives, which means we work in his power, we get to see the same result he would have seen had he been here. Right. Oh, that's great. But when you turn the coin over, if he was persecuted, so will we be. You've got to understand the principal benefits and rewards of working with Christ. They're all spiritual, notwithstanding some of the earthly benefits that might come along in the, in the process. But you understand if you operate in this place, you get everything, including the scorn that he would have received had he stood there and done what you do. So we have to appreciate that there's eternal value both in the work and in seeing the joy of it and never get caught up in the earthly benefits of it. And likewise, you have to understand there is also going to be some kind of spiritual benefit in the eternal realm for suffering persecution in the process of it, just as Christ did. Christ was unfairly condemned, was he not? Well, then we should also expect to be unfairly mistreated. And similarly, he received a great inheritance from his father because of his obedience to the father in the face of persecution. Well, so shall we also share in the rewards through obedience for facing persecution. I mean, it goes hand in hand. No persecution, no rewards, potentially, or at least lesser. And if you're not willing to take on the the task of being his representative, well, then you're saying, I don't want any part of this. I don't want the good or the bad. And that's not something we've been given an option to say, thankfully. We've been enlisted. We didn't choose him. He chose us. Then Jesus says that having the spirit working in us gives opportunity for three types of spiritual work to be accomplished through us. First, he said the spirit will convict the world of sin. What he means is convicts them of unbelief. Jesus is describing the work of bringing salvation, of someone coming to faith. When the Spirit convicts a person of unbelief, it always leads to repentance and salvation. There's only one kind of conviction or repentance that the Spirit creates, and it's always the kind unto salvation, according to Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9, he says, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful by a letter that he wrote, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. You were made sorrowful according to the will of God so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret. Notice that? It always produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, Paul says, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So Paul says, through us, through the Spirit working in us, the Spirit will use us to convict the world of its sin. Therefore, to say he will convict the world of sin is a way of saying, through you, by the Spirit, you will bring people into the kingdom. Secondly, Jesus says the spirit will convict the world regarding righteousness. The spirit working in us will show the world what righteousness looks like by sanctifying the saints as he indwells us. By conviction of sin and training in righteousness, the spirit yields the fruit of righteousness in every believer. And the sanctified lives of saints on earth is a source of conviction for the world, like we talked about earlier. So he uses us to convict them on account of their sin for the point of salvation. He uses the church's sanctification to convict the world concerning what righteousness looks like. Finally, the spirit will convict the world and its ruler in the last judgment. This is also to our benefit. This is something you have to understand. He's not speaking just to the spirit's work in any of these three. He's talking about how the spirit works through the church. 
How are we involved in that last one? Well, the Bible says all believers participate with Christ in judging the world. Even now, we stand as witnesses against those who persecute us. So that's a form of of judgment. And then beyond even that, 1 Corinthians 9 says that believers will judge the fallen angels, the demons. So across all three of these areas, the believer plays an important role that's made possible only because Christ has left us to do the work in his place through his spirit. All this would have been outside our reach if it hadn't been for the fact that Christ is leaving us. So what he's saying, in a sense, is if you're upset that I'm leaving you and when I do, you'll be persecuted in my place. Don't focus merely on that detail. Understand the full picture of what you're going to be given opportunity to do and why it's a blessing. Now he begins to wind it down, as we will as well. He first he alludes to more information that will be forthcoming in the future. He says specifically the spirit will fill in the gaps after he departs. Verse 12, he says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things the father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose to you. That's just self-evident for the most part, isn't it? The spirit repeats what he hears. Then the spirit guides us to follow it properly. Notice it doesn't say that he overrides us. He seeks to work with us, but you can quench or disobey the spirit. And notice how Jesus emphasizes the respective roles of the Godhead. This section is so illuminating on the Godhead. It's really quite remarkable. Look at the interplay. The spirit's mission is to bring glory to Christ. But remember, it was the son's desire to obey and glorify the father. The father sent the son into the world. Once Jesus goes back to the father, he says the son sends the spirit in his place. And the Spirit works to glorify in the the Son through the church. Yet the Spirit doesn't speak of his own initiative, meaning he doesn't decide what to tell the church to do. The Spirit just tells the church to do whatever Jesus wants the church to do. But then again, Jesus only does what he sees the Father doing. Now, what you see in all this is a clear hierarchy. Even though we know they are one, working as one, of one mind, of one intent, no one created the other, they are all eternal, they each play a role, but for a common purpose. And the hierarchy that emerges here is that the father is above all. The son is second to the father and the spirit is third. And that hierarchy is reflected throughout the New Testament, even reflected in the way we declare baptism. We baptize in the name of the father, son and Holy Spirit. That ordering implies that hierarchy. It's been some time since the apostles said anything. Last time they did that, they got cut out at the knees. So I think they were thinking that's not a good idea, but they can't stand it any longer. And so they begin to ponder out loud some of what Jesus is saying. Verse 16. Jesus says, a little while and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Some of his disciples then said to one another, what is this thing he is telling us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I go to the father. So they were saying, what is this that he says? A little while. We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wished to question him. And he said to them, are you deliberating together about this? That I said a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. So he's alluding, as you can tell, to his coming death and his resurrection. He's talking about being gone for a little while, coming back and so on. And, you know, all of that's going to just be guaranteed to confuse the disciples as it does. It's almost as though Jesus seems to want them to know that he's predicted these outcomes in advance, but at the same time withhold enough of the information to keep them fuzzy on the details for now. It'll only be with hindsight that they'll be able to put it all together, which is when they'll need to know this so that they can see it. Because perhaps if they had known all the details now, they might have tried to stop it or intervene in some way to prevent it. But in any case, as you can see, they're lost in the conversation. So in response, Jesus tries to reassure them using an analogy. He says the coming separation from him and them will bring first great pain and sorrow, followed by great joy, much as you see in childbirth. And of course, the analogy is very easy to understand the immense pain of labor. And then you have the child. So it will be with the disciples and Christ's death and resurrection. You will see me dead for a while. That will be your period of suffering. You'll see me alive again. That will be your period of joy. You'll forget all the other stuff when I come. The comparison between his passion and the process of childbirth gives a lot more meaning to God's decision to make childbirth painful in the garden. In fact, I don't think it's a stretch to say it's a measure of grace to the woman 
even as it memorialized her mistake. What God chose to do in that unique response is he places in the womb and in the birth process this beautiful picture of Christ so that a woman is now carrying that picture of Christ, really a mini statement of the gospel in the birth process. First, the need for pain and suffering on the part of God in order to redeem those who have sinned and therefore bring into the world the joy of salvation. That's the picture that Jesus is alluding to here, that old things have passed away, new things have come in our experience through Christ. Though a woman dislikes this aspect of childbirth, I'm taking that on good references, she can see evidence of God's faithfulness to redeem the earth even in that process. And with the hour of his death at hand, he begins to reveal the depths of what's coming. 23 through 28, he says, In that day you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. These things I've spoken to you in figurative language. But an hour is coming when I no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I have come forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. In verse 23, as Jesus says that in the day of his departure, there will be no more opportunity to direct questions to him directly. The disciples then will have no choice once he's gone, but to access the knowledge of God through the Father by prayers in Jesus' name. That's the only way they're going to have any opportunity to know what Jesus would have told them. So then he says here, though they have not asked anything of Jesus until this time, what he's doing is he's encouraging them now to avail themselves of that privilege going forward. And this is not just for them. This is a command for all believers. It's one of the primary blessings of having peace through Christ. And that is the access to the Father. Jesus desires that we know his peace and his joy and his will and that we direct our needs to him. And he says, I won't even have to ask the father on your behalf. This isn't a relay. You'll be so intimately connected now to the father. Your requests go straight to him without me having to be the one to repeat him. And in this moment, the disciples never thought. Notice the questioning never begins here. There's never a point in here where the disciples start asking him questions again. So Jesus says, you've never thought to ask me directly about where I'm going. You just keep talking to each other. Notice in the earlier section, they had been talking in such a way that they expected Jesus would not hear him, but he knew what they were saying. So his point is, you're not even asking me about what I'm doing now at this point. And so he says, that's all about to change. You will now have the father's ear. And When I answer, he says, I'm not going to answer in figurative language anymore. We're done with that. Jesus began using parables, which is what he's referring to, in Matthew 13. Chronologically, it was right about the point when the Jews rejected him formally, and he put them under the condemnation of having committed the unpardonable sin. And as a result, from that moment on, John 13 onward, he teaches in parables. Matthew 1 through 12, not a single parable. Matthew 13 and onward, nothing but parables. And that distinction is important because it's the reason Jesus made this change. Beforehand, he was presenting openly the gospel. Once it had been formally rejected by Israel, he excludes them and he hides the truth. But now that there are hours from his death, the point in the obscuring has been met. It has allowed Israel in their hard hearts to bring Jesus to the cross. Now there's no need anymore for him to obscure anything. He can speak plainly. And from now on, the Father's going to give them a clear understanding. Now, besides merely meaning that they would learn of things in a clearer way, what Jesus' comments really refer to is the apostles' collective gifting to author scripture. From this point forward, when they ask, they're going to learn. It's going to be plain and accurate, and they're going to be able to record it. By their clear understanding, they get to write the books of the New Testament. And by their writing, we benefit from that same clear understanding. Just consider that everything you know concerning Christ's life And his death and the meaning of those events comes from the men who heard Jesus speak these words. All the New Testament from them or or apostles that followed them. The key concepts of our faith all come through their understanding. And that knowledge was itself the result of this promise that from here on I will reveal myself to you clearly. Once again, having received the teaching, we are to rest in what is recorded. Then Jesus reveals the plain truth of his departure. He says, I'm going away because I'm going back to the Father. Look at the reaction of the disciples to that, verse 29. Then his disciples said, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you have come from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. Yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. 
These things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. So the apostles react to Jesus' sudden transparency with surprise. They say, lo, which is the ancient version of woe. And they, they're surprised to hear he's going back to heaven. And they seize on this nugget that he came from God the Father and he's going to go back to God the Father. They seize on that to declare that now they know Jesus came from the Father and that he knows all and that he is the Christ. After all that they've seen Jesus do for three years, after all the miracles, after everything Jesus has taught, now they're convinced concerning his claims. Jesus responds incredulously with another biblical equivalent of, really? <laughs> Read it a couple times in your head. You start to hear their statement sounding a bit forced to me, as if they're trying to demonstrate understanding in return for Jesus' willingness to speak plainly, like they don't want to disappoint him that they still don't get it after he's worked so hard to make it so plain, like the person who says they understand you when they really don't understand you at all. Jesus knew they were playing along. It's mere hours right before he's going to die. And so he he tries to cut to the chase by saying they're going to run away at the sight of him being arrested. You, you think you understand this? You don't understand this. In fact, in a few hours, you're going to abandon me. That's how little confidence you have. They're going to scatter. You're so fearful for your earthly life that you're going to abandon the Lord in the time of his distress. And as plain as those words are to them here, they still do it, just as he predicted a few hours later. Nevertheless, he says, I want to leave you with my peace. This is such a great ending to chapter 16, because how peaceful would you feel at this point, knowing you're going to be persecuted, killed likely, and oh, by the way, you're going to betray or at least abandon your Lord in just a few hours. If you took him at his word, you had to be feeling just awful at this point. It's going to become a source of peace when they reflect on this discourse later, because they will understand that Jesus knew this was going to happen in advance. It's not a surprise to him. He's able to tell them to expect it. When you know that someone you disappoint knew you were going to do it before you do it, it softens the blow of what you think they were feeling in the moment. To see it happen didn't shock Jesus and utterly decimate his confidence in them. He's telling them in advance it's going to happen. And so they have reason to think it won't be held against them. The Lord in his sovereignty saw it coming and has turned it to good. And he says, therefore, when they face a trial... They should know it's part of God's plan. They can rejoice in it and face it with peace. Or when they reflect on their abandonment of Jesus, they can understand that too played into God's purposes. They were forgiven for it. All those things are possible, he says, because I've overcome the world and the adversary. If I've overcome the world, then these things shouldn't bother you either. If God is for us, who can be against us? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, that we can uh, be encouraged even by sober things like the face of facing persecution or by the fact that others may oppose us simply because of our testimony. For we know, Father, you'll use it in some great way to your purpose. And we thank you, Father, that we can have the opportunity to step into Christ's shoes, so to speak, in an utterly limited way, but nevertheless, as he has chosen and called us to do so, so that we may further the advance of your word in this world and the kingdom that comes through it. Thank you, Father, for the privilege it is to work side by side in your power. For you call us friends and not slaves. We ask you, Lord, that you'd give us the conviction and the hope to go do that so that we wouldn't use our, uh, our own ex- weaknesses or the world's hatred as an excuse not to pursue what you've given us to do. And, Lord, I pray that you would uh, come back quickly so we could join you in heaven and see all these things from your perspective. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.